Hello, good evening, good day, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit show where I take questions from you and I answer those questions. So to those of you who are new to the channel, welcome and thank you for joining. For those of you who are regular viewers, welcome back. Thank you for joining. And for those of you who don't know how to ask questions, you can ask me questions in the comments in any of, of, of the videos on my channel and use the hashtag Ask Abhijit so that I can find your question. That's how you ask your questions, right? With that said, let's see who all is there on the live chat. I can see Radha Apte, Lone Rider, Vishal, Natha, Jatin, Gupta, Payne, Sunita, Sopra, Kal, Bhairav, Harsh, Dubey, Nilab, Akash, Dobriyal, Tango, Charlie, Sushant, Gupta, Twilight, Sumit, Agarwal, Appleseed, Mahendra, Khati, Miguel Diaz, Kushirani, Reeve, Kalita, Sampriti, Goswami, Jay Dikshit, Ashish Kumar, Nisarg, Prasanna, Mahender, Manmat, Tiwari, Shubham, Aditya Shetty, Bibek, Haldar, Priya, Karan, uh, Akshit, Aditya, Saket, Katari, Deepak, Vivek, Kumargiri, Jigar, Pranav, Dhruv, Mark, Dhruv, Kumar, DK, Jai Bharat, Nelly, Reddy, Nellore, Nirbhai, Sharma, Bahu, Uday, Shashwat, Aman, George, Kishore, Pranav, Ishan, Geopolitical Dubai, Kuldi Patak, Monalisa, Sahu, Animish, Divyang, Swatantra, Kumar, Yaduvansh, Purna, Lingam, Garvit Singh Chauhan, GOH, Vaibhav, Disposal, Email, Harsh Negi, Melvin, Rain, Vivek, Crazy Brain, Vladimir Zelensky, Soman, Jetha, Jong Un, <laughs> Pamel, Nandi, Deepesh, Hind, Se, Tavi, Putras, Fapnil, Mondal, Alpha, D. Black, Urvesh, Atish, Ankushnath, Sudhakar, Surajit, Swapnil, Mishra, Tanuj, Shivang, Veer, Das, Karamchand Gandhi, <laughs> Akash, Kostub, Pankaj, Aryan Saini, Miguel Diaz again, Umkar, Animish, Tejas, Sushant Gupta, Chandan, Chaitanya, Lagiraho Online, Sampriti Goswami, Teja, Kapil, and lots and lots and lots of other people. So nice to have you all on this live chat. I am un un unfortunately, I cannot greet you all by name, but thank you so much for being on this. Krabby Feet, uh, Sonak, I'll take some more names, Praful, Jay Patel, Lord Arjun, Vinayak, Somnath Abhishek, Chulbul, Vivek Kumar Giri, and uh, everybody else, everybody else, Meban Kitlang, Khar, Kharbudon, Chirag Avasti, and everybody else. So, with that, uh, with that done, uh, let's uh, take some questions, right? Let's. Uh, I can see lots of people saying hello. Hello to you all. Hello to you all. All right. All right. Let's get into the into the heart of the matter. Let's take some questions. What's question number one? What is question number one? Okay, I don't really know how to read Bengali, so uh, I'll just go into the question. I would like to understand why only the tigers of the Sundarbans are traditionally man-eaters. <laughs> There, there are many folklores like due to the salty water they drink, etc. But I haven't seen any scientific report anywhere. Well, I'm not sure that the tigers of the Sundarbans region drink salty water. Mm, that is not something that um, uh, that um, mammals or animals do. I mean, salt water mammals would probably swallow salty water and all, like whales and maybe crocodiles, which are not mammals, also do that. But uh, so let's let's see where is the where is the Sundarbans region? Yes, let's see where that is. Mm, let's go to the maps. Yes, today we are starting with the map. Where is the Sundarbans? So, we go to the east part of India, eastern part of India. It's it's in the uh, delta region of uh, 
unified bengal bangladesh yeah which is mainly bangladesh and also uh, parts of uh, indian bengal yeah so we have the great padma river or the, the ganga which drains into uh, the the sea of kalinga or the bay of bengal whatever you want to call it indian ocean and there are various other tributaries lots of rivers that also drain into this region and this entire region is full of these mangrove forests and other forests that's called the sundarbans right uh and yes, there, this is this region is home to a whole lot of tigers. I'm not sure it's a very large tiger population, but yeah, one of the largest tiger populations that still survives in the world. Yeah, and yes, these tigers have this um, reputation of of uh, hunting people, yeah, of of killing people. That's why they are called man eaters. So why is this? Why is it that these tigers do that? Why do they have this reputation of being man eaters? First of all, this is a highly populated area. Uh, Bangladesh and, and Bengal have some of the highest population densities in the world and lots of people live in the Sundarbans. People uh, rely on the Sundarbans forests uh, forest for uh, a variety of uh, purposes, for the livelihood, for gathering honey, for fishing, for other things. Yeah, so they venture out into the forest or so sometimes in small groups, sometimes alone. Yeah, so they, 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 they present a very tempting opportunity for these large cats. No, for for a very for a cheap meal, typically a tiger has to work really hard for his or her meal. They have to hunt animals, and animals are really well adapted to trying to 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 evade tigers. So it's really hard work to get a decent meal when you have these slow-moving ape-like creatures, human beings who can't really run <laughs> and who can't see in the dark. It's kind of really easy for a tiger to catch people such such prey. And typically, tigers uh, don't do this. But once a tiger gets the taste of this and he or she realizes how easy it is to just hunt humans then they start doing that and once i mean tigers are typically solitary cats they don't live in large social groups but yes one or two of them they learn this and maybe others would pick up pick it up from them especially if it's a mother who's teaching her kids her cubs how to hunt yeah and then that may be passed on from generation to generation. That sort of thing may happen. Yeah, so that's the reason why th there are lots of these uh, these uh, scary stories of man-eating tigers in the Sundarbans region, in 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 Bengal, in unified Bengal, in overall the Bengal region. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't think all of the tigers there are man-eaters, but yes, human beings present a very tempting meal for tigers. And it's easy to hunt humans, uh, so so and and because of the high population density and all that, that's why it's uh, likely that this uh, phenomenon occurs there. But it's not like uh, only the tigers of the Sundarbans have been man-eaters. We have uh, had reports of of man-eating tigers throughout the ages in India. I mean, even during the British occupation of India. Uh, you had the the so-called Corbett National Park. We still have this national park, which is called the Jim Corbett National Park. Jim Corbett was a poacher. He was a murderer of animals. And he was a foreign occupier. But we have named this national park after this fellow Jim Corbett, who is known for killing tigers. So during the time of Jim Corbett, when he was alive and he was, uh, yeah, well, he was there in northern India, uh, there were many reports of various tigers that had taken to to, to killing human beings, yeah? So and he he personally took out some of the, some of these tigers. This fellow Jim Corbett. So there are report there are reports from that region of tigers uh, turning to uh, killing human beings. There are reports of other animals also turning to killing human beings, like leopards. In, 
for instance, in, in Western India, in, in Mumbai, there is this uh, national park. I don't know what it's called. It's some strange name. Uh, there is this national park in Mumbai where there you have the largest, I mean, the highest population density of leopards probably in the world. And these leopards sometimes, uh, you know, they, they prey on humans once in a while because, uh, well, it's easy. Yeah, humans are the slowest of the creatures they can hunt. Uh, typically, they go after goats and dogs and all that. And usually, uh, sometimes deer also and other small animals, but sometimes human beings. And uh, so th that's what happens. In, it's not just leopards and, and tigers. Uh, I, I remember many, many, many years ago when I was a kid, I watched this movie. When I was a teenager or something, I watched a movie called The Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, it was a movie set in Kenya at the turn of the 19th century, 1920th century, late 19th century. And uh, it's about the construction of a ra railroad in Kenya and Indian origin workers are involved. I think Om Puri was one of the actors. Yeah. So this movie, The Ghost of the Ghost and the Darkness, was about the this these two animals, these two lions. These two lions were siblings, brothers, and they were called the man-eaters of Tsavo. So these lions also, it seems like they exclusively hunted human beings because it was so easy to, to catch to, to hunt humans. So this is a phenomenon you see across the world. Wherever you have big cats, once a big cat, whether it's, whether it's a lion or a tiger or, or any other large cat, once he or she realizes that it's that you can hunt humans and how easy it is, then they kind of you know get lazy and they go on doing that because it makes sense, you know, less energy expenditure and almost like a guaranteed meal. So that's why large cats take to occasionally take to hunting human beings. So it's not like it's something that's exclusive to the tigers or the, of the Sundarbans. It's not like it's exclusive to only tigers. I think lots of animals do this. Even bears, typically, they don't hunt humans. But there have been reports of bears, whether it is polar bears or those brown bears, the Klondike bears in Alaska or various other parts of, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of North America. Even bears in India, sometimes you hear about bears attacking humans, yeah? But typically, it's when humans provoke them. So that's how it goes. It's not like the tigers of Sundarbans are exclusively man-eaters or traditionally man-eaters. It's just that it's happened because of the overpopulation of the region, the tigers' shrinking habitat and the paucity of, of uh, the prey that they have, resources to hunt. And that's why they sometimes take to, uh, to hunting or preying upon human beings. But it's not something that's exclusive to these tigers. All right, I hope that answers this question. Great question to start off with. What else do we have? Sri Ram Kannan says, I am from Singapore. The other day I was discussing with my school professor about the rise of Singapore. He said that Singapore had an iron man called Lee Kuan Yew who had harmonized Singapore again under one umbrella which had unified Singapore. He also said that colonialism in Singapore was a good thing as it had brought English which unified everyone under one language. He says, why can't India do the same? Uh, India should be unified under one language as well. I said that's not possible because of the cultural diversity and evolution. I would like to know your views on this matter. Do you think India can ever be unified wholly under a language despite having a lot of diversity? India has always had a huge amount of diversity going back to Vedic times. It's not like uh, in, during the Vedic times when the Rig Veda was written, there was only one language Sanskrit. There must have been lots of languages spoken even then. But we have always had one unifying civilizational language. So people in various parts of India, they would have spoken, spoken various languages. But these languages are all in some way or the other interconnected, interrelated, and, and uh, in some way alike. And the common language that... that uh, unified everything was Sanskrit. That was always the link language, the civilizational language. That's the language that spread across Eurasia, 
Yeah. And so that's how it is. Now coming to Louis, Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew is a very interesting uh, person. Uh, clearly, the great, uh, the grandmaster of Singapore, the, the great unifier of Singapore. He was first elected prime minister, I believe, in 1959. Yeah, 1959. Uh, so, where is Singapore? Let's go to the map once again. Where is the map? Singapore. So we know where India is. Let's go south, south, south. And we know where Malaysia is, yes. The Malacca Strait, we all know, I believe, because you watch my channel, you know where the Malacca Strait is. So at the other end of the Malacca Strait, you have this island city called Singapore. It's Singapore. It's a Sanskrit name. And you can see it's at the southern tip of Malaysia. Of course, you have another part of Malaysia on this island here, Kalimantan. Yeah, Borneo or whatever. So Singapore. So uh, there was a time when Singapore was unified with Malaysia and then there were various issues and this, the Singaporeans, uh, I think they left Malaysia. There was this partition or whatever you want to call it, secession of Singapore from Malaysia in the early 1960s. What, what year was it? 63, 65, somewhere around there. Look it up. Okay, I don't memorize dates. Uh, and Lee Kuan Yew was the prime minister of Singapore. He was... First elected 59, most likely. Then he was the prime minister of Singapore. Essentially the dictator of Singapore, you could say, from 1965 to, I think, 1990. And even after 1990, he was the most powerful politician, but he did not have any official position after 1990, which actually is more suitable to being in, 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 in power. You know, no responsibilities and, and a lot of power. So what Lee Kuan Yew, Yew did is that he took Singapore out of within a generation, within let's say 20 years, from the status of a third world country to a highly prosperous, highly developed first world nation with one of the highest rates of per capita GDP and one of the most amazing levels of prosperity anywhere in the world. He did this within a generation, within 20 years. So 1960s, Singapore is a third world nation with slums and, 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 and broken down system and no infrastructure, nothing. By the 1980s, it is a highly prosperous first world country, very highly developed, huge booming economy, excellent prosperity. So Lee Kuan Yew uh, was a firm believer in the English language. Yeah, uh, Of course, he did resent colonialism to a certain extent, but uh, he was kind of an Anglophile. He... Uh, uh, he reformed Singapore. He instituted this very strong one-party system, essentially essentially a one-party system, essentially a dictatorship, with a very strong focus on the economy, with a very strong, strong focus on social harmony. Singapore is, is a is a city that's a melting pot of Indians and uh, Indians and, and Chinese mainly and uh, Malays also, the three main ethnicities, yeah. So he harmonized them under this uh, umbrella of English, yeah. Social harmony, economic development, education, very strong and very rigorous education for everybody and, and public housing, all these things. Yeah. So he did a superb job, a stupendous job of doing this. And the Chinese have tried to copy this. So Lee Kuan Yew was a, an ethnic a Chinese person. So the Chinese Communist Party sent lots of officials to Singapore to study the methods of Singapore. And I think Deng Xiaoping used to say that if I have to transform Shanghai into Singapore, I can do it in a decade. But China is so enormous, it's, it's a huge struggle. So the same thing applies to India as well. It's very easy to transform a city-state, which is just one city. The smaller the system, the more complex can be your adjustments. But the larger the system, 
the simpler you have to keep things, the policies and all that. So, so Lee Kuan Yew had this wonderful set of policies that really worked. It totally transformed Singapore. Of course, there are complaints about authoritarianism, about the imposed, you know, unifying foreign language and all those things. It's it's very harsh. The rule is very harsh. The fines are very harsh, and the, the discipline is very harsh and all that. But overall, it's been it's worked out really great for the people of Singapore. Uh, so the question is, what about India? So, so Lee Kuan Yew came to India a few times. He was actually, uh, you could say, um, he was fond of India. I mean, if you read his books, I have a couple of big, his books lying around somewhere. Uh, he writes about India and he he sp speaks about the caste system, that the caste system and all that is going to keep India back. And he recounts, he re recollects that he had visited uh, India, New Delhi, and he remembers how shoddy the Rashtrapati Bhavan was. And uh, he's, he remember, I think he wrote about the fact that he asked Indira Gandhi, Madam Mrs. Indira Gandhi, the, then Prime Minister of India, that your, the Indian people in Singapore are among the highest performing people in the world. Yeah, they contribute so much to Singapore and, and Indians elsewhere also, they, they uh, stand out among all other ethnic groups. So why can't you do something in India that will unleash the potential of India? Yeah. And the answer from uh, Mrs. Gandhi was like, no, this is the way it's going to be in India. Some, something to, to that, to that uh, effect. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember the name of the book, but uh, I have it uh, somewhere. Yeah. So that's what he said. So the thing is that it's really easy to turn around a small nation, a city state in a decade, in two decades, very easy. Yeah. But the larger the system is, the more inertia and resistance it has from within, especially in the so-called federal system that we have, where you have so many different centers of political power and one center of central power, centralized power, which is not that powerful overall. It's very complicated. The kind of system we have created after 1947, right? The setup that we have created is designed to prevent any rapid progress. That's how it is. But it's, it's certainly something that can be worked upon. And the more you change it, the faster the change will happen. But overall, the Chinese tried to emulate the Singaporean system. And now you can see that it's kind of working to a certain extent. It takes a long time in a large country. Yeah. I mean, if you have, let's say you have a helicopter. No, forget a helicopter. Let's say you have a drone that's the size of my hand. You want to turn it around, make it flip. It can flip very fast. But let's say you have the, a drone the size of a building. You want to make it flip. It's going to take a long time to slowly flip around. Yeah, that's how it goes. Any physical system, including any political system, the larger it is, the slower it will move around. That's how it is. So it's certainly something that we can uh, take inspiration from, uh, the kind of reforms and policies that uh, Lee Kuan Yew adopted. I do not agree with the fact that English should be the unifying uh, uh, unifying factor for India. We are a 10,000 plus year old civilization. Our unifying language, our civilization language has always been Sanskrit. Today, they, they have created an enormous amount of opposition to Sanskrit in India. And this is something that has been created over the past 100 years, especially after 1947, especially after the 1960s, the political opposition to Sanskrit from all quarters, all kinds of quarters. Yeah. So it's going to be an uphill battle. Battle. For India, but eventually, if India is to regain its its civilizational status as one of the as the preeminent civilization, it has to come back under Sanskrit, not English. English is the language of the oppressor, the colonizer. Right now, we use it. That's fine. We use it against them. That, that's all right. But eventually, we have to return to Sanskrit. That is the one unifying language we can have. English is is a is a stopgap solution, and it's not the right solution. So yes, India can certainly be unified under one language, but that, that language cannot be English. 
it has to be sanskrit it has always been sanskrit yeah it is it is certainly possible we have enormous an enormous amount of cultural diversity and all that you go to even within a certain state let's say odisha you go from northern odisha uttar kalinga utkal and you go to southern odisha the cuisine changes the dialect the the, the way of speaking changes the way of dressing changes everything changes right so it's 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 so beautiful to have so much diversity and yet we have always been one civilization extending all the way to indonesia and the philippines and all that so the unifying factor was dharma the dharmic culture and sanskrit so that's where india has to go back maybe it will take 20 years maybe 50 years maybe 100 years but that's the direction in which india has to go if it as it has to ever like people keep on saying akhand bharat or 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 uh, what do they say uh, transforming india into bharat or making india the vishwa guru or making india the superpower it will not happen as long as we promote english as the link language english is a foreign language it's the it's the it's one of the worst remnants of colonialism yeah and people like me are most comfortable in english that's that's the that's what's been done to us yeah so english has to go but yes we can certainly be unified wholly under one language that can only happen under sanskrit even hindi is not the right language yeah the hindi is not i mean it's a very recent language it's a it's a mongrel language a mixture you know like they say in hindi hindi khichdi of various things like like various turkic dialects and some arabic some persian with uh, overall the structure and and syntax the structure the grammatical structure of sanskrit with the vocabulary of all these foreign languages that's what hindi is hindi is something that emerged out of the uh, turkic court the mogal so called mogal court and i eventually hindi has to be phased out hindi is not the right language to unify india i don't know who decided and why they decided to use hindi i think it was the great magnificent mr nehru who did that so hindi eventually has to go it can only be sanskrit as if india has to rise again not english not hindi it has to be sanskrit and i know i i i am i'm sure i can i mean i can imagine what kind of comments in in the chat will be going on right now but that's fine this is my view and that's the only way forward okay shapat choudhary says <clears throat> I am from Chittagong, Bangladesh, Chattogram. I'd like to know. I'd like to ask about the contributions so far of the whole Bengali people from the period, the time period of the epic Itihasa, such as Ramayana and Mahabharat, until the present day. It saddens me now to read about my own culture from so-called history textbooks referred to us in the school, where they speak very less about Bengal. Also, I would like to ask uh, how effective it will be to install a new mandatory law for the foreigners to learn our national language first, starting from Sanskrit, of course. whenever they intend to come to any countries in the indian subcontinent uh, because i'm asking because we have this unfortunate status right now where people must speak english for them to understand and also i believe language plays a big role in our identity and our address as a nation for example punjabi marathi bengali tamil french german etc they are known from respective places for the mother tongue they speak okay right my thoughts so first of all let's speak about the the people of bengal so bengal is is a wonderful place it's got this incredibly rich wonderful history that that dates back to the beginning of india itself right bengal is not some separate place and the bengalis are some separate people it's never been that way right so we know where bengal is do i have to put it in the map let's do it in case <laughs> all right we know where bengal is you know uh, bengal has been partitioned into india and east pakistan that was then it's all went happened with the partition in the early 20th century by one of the english guys curzon was it whoever it was and then today we have bangladesh and and uh, west bengal but this entire region was once called vanga or anga 
So once we had the kingdom of Anga, which was ruled by the Kuru dynasty, the Anga Mahajanapada. And the people of this Mahajanapada, the great republic, we have to call the Angayas, right? And the Mahajanapada era dates back to the late Vedic era itself, right? The Vedic era is many thousands of years old. So we had the great Anga Mahajanapada, right? Then we had various kingdoms uh, in this region, kingdoms like uh, Suhma, Suhma kingdom of the late Vedic period. We had uh, the Pundra kingdom of the Mahabharata era, Pundra Vardhana, yeah, which lasted all the way to the Mauryan times. Uh, the infamous incident of uh, King of Emperor Ashok executing, ordering the execution of eighteen thousand Ajivikas happened in Pundra, right? Then obviously we 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 have the Vanga. Kingdom, which is mentioned in the Mahabharata, in the, in the Ramayan, uh, in the Arthashastra of Chanakya as well. Yeah, so you can see the oldest period is the Ram, is the Vedic period. Then you have the Ramayan period. Then, then I would say the Mahajanapada's period. Then the which would have included the Mahabharata more or less. And then we have the Mauryan era and the modern era. Right. So the Vanga kingdom is mentioned in the Ramayana, in the Mahabharata, in the Arthashastra. The Anga kingdom is mentioned, is one of was one of the great Mahajanapadas. So you can see how ancient the history is, right? So then um, uh, you, this region was from various uh, in during various uh, time periods part of the uh, Mauryan Empire, part of the Gupta Empire. Then you had the great Gauda kingdom, right? Gauda kingdom from about, from roughly the third. From the fourth century AD to the middle of the seventh century AD, yeah, uh, the last king was the great king Shashank, who died in the middle of the seventh century AD or so, and then there was a period of uh, about a century of complete anarchy and chaos, Matsyanyaya, that's what it was called, and then you had the advent of the Pala Empire. The founder was Gopala the first, who was democratically elected by the people to put an end to the Matsyanai, to the chaos and anarchy. And the people themselves elected this guy democratically as the king of the of, of the Vanga region, Gopal. And he was the founder of the Pal Empire from the middle of the 8th century AD. And it lasted for about uh, maybe 400 years, roughly, that sort of thing. So that's the kind of history this region has had. It's always been the history of Bengal is intrinsically related to the entire history of the entirety of India. It dates back to the Vedic times, the Ramayan times, the Mahabharata times, the Mahajanapada era, the Mauryan era, the the um, the Mauryan Empire, the Gupta Empire. Then you had all that. So it's it's a very rich, beautiful history. It was it it historically was one of the most Rich, the, one of the most prosperous, one of the richest and fertile and abundant regions of India. Beautiful culture, excellent education. The great Vikramashila Mahavihar or, or uh, the great Vikramashila University is in Bengal. Its ruins are in Bengal. Everything is ruined now. Yeah, it's not in present day Bangladesh, Bangladesh, if I'm not mistaken. Beautiful history, very rich history. And then you had the you had the destruction of Nalanda and the Turkic conquest of the region. Yeah. And then things go south, and today we have Bangladesh and West Bengal, and let's let's uh, end it there. <laughs> so, uh, what's the other question? Yeah, the question is how effective would it be to install a new mandatory law for foreigners to learn our national language, starting with Sanskrit, for countries in the Indian subcontinent? I don't think Pakistan would ever agree to making Sanskrit the mandatory language. <laughs> I don't think Afghanistan would make it. Would 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 uh, ever agree to that. I am not sure even Bangladesh would agree to that. I am not sure even West Bengal would agree to Sanskrit. That's the problem. That's the problem. 
that's the unfortunate status we that we have right now. We are so deeply divided within within ourselves. Even within India, we are so divided. But eventually, this has to happen. We need to have a single unifying civilization language, which is the and the only one that is, that can fit the bill is Sanskrit. It's the oldest language. It is also an extremely adaptable language and a very scientific and modern language. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that needs to happen eventually. But Bengal is a wonderful place. Beautiful, incredibly rich and complex history. And it's kind of sad uh, to see the direction it went in in the past 1000 years, which is something that happened to the entirety of India. The, the millennium of humiliation. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's about that's about Bengal. Yes. Right, let's take some questions about science for a change. We hardly talk about science these days, yes? So let's see some questions about science. Ishika says, can we say that there, wo, there is no matter without time and there is no time without matter? As we consider the birth of the universe uh, uh, to be when time started. Interesting question. So yes, the universe begins with what we call the Big Bang. Yes, the, the, we initially had a, a singularity or something close to a singularity, and then it expanded outwards. It expanded, there was this expansion of space-time, uh, and that's that's the beginning, the beginning of time. So the moment of the Big Bang, or the, or the Big Bang itself, is when time started from t equal to zero, and then it, it goes on forward. So, uh, so yes, initially the universe was just pure energy, at the instant of the Big Bang, and then eventually the energy coalesced into massive particles and all that. That's a whole long story. Yeah, it happened in the very initial moments after the Big Bang. So initially, it's pure energy, most likely just photons and gravitons and all that. Um, so that's how it was. So time has always coexisted with mass energy. And you could also say that mass energy has also coexisted with time. But the question is, what happened before the Big Bang? And we don't quite have the answer. Nobody has an answer. Uh, there are people like Roger Penrose who have spoken about this, uh, the, the concept of eons. Eons, yeah. Uh, conforming cyclic cosmology. That's uh, that's his theory. Penrose, Hammerhoff. Uh, so I'm not sure. I've not really studied that. So I'm not sure what the concept of time is that when you go back in time to before the Big Bang or after the Big Crunch or whatever it is. <laughs> So yeah, typically time and mass energy they go together. Yeah, um, but we don't quite know what time is. Is it something that only that that, that is an artifact of our consciousness? Is it is it something we imagine, or is it something that emerges out of the fabric of space time, or, or is it something that like like in quantum mechanics time is an external parameter? In quantum mechanics time is a classical parameter. Yeah. So is time something that's external to our universe as well? Or is it something else entirely? Does it emerge out of uh, decoherence or does it emerge out of entanglement, quantum entanglement? No one knows yet. There are lots of theories that people are struggling with, but we don't quite know time. what time is. So yes, as far as we, we are concerned, from whatever we understand, time and mass energy have always gone together. Why do I say mass energy? Because mass and energy are essentially equivalent. E equals mc squared, which is one of the most uh, fundamental equations in, in modern physics, like they say. Yeah, 19 0 Five was it? Whichever year, yeah. So yeah, that's the deal. That's the deal. They just says, are black holes therefore eternity? Do how do they follow the law of conservation of energy? Black holes are something that people really find scary, right? These vacuum vacuum cleaners which suck everything in, which is not quite the case. Black holes are just 
well, you could think of them as pure mass. And they take various forms, you know, the rotating, non-rotating black holes, unrotating, uncharged black holes, like the Schwarzschild black holes. Then you have the various other kinds of black holes, uh, charged black holes, rot uh, rotating black holes, rotating and charged black holes, extremal black holes, all, all that. So, are black holes eternal? Are they infinite? Are they? Do they live forever? Well, not quite the case. Uh, the smaller a black hole is, the hotter it is. So it's a thermodynamic object. And a hot object is going to radiate stuff. So a black hole actually radiates mass energy. Yeah. And if it radiates mass energy, then it's going to shrink in size. This is what we call Hawking radiation or black hole evaporation. So as a black hole uh, evaporates, if, if its temperature is higher than the temperature of the universe, which is, uh, uh, what is it? The, the cosmic microwave background radiation temperature, then the black hole will evaporate and shrink. And the smaller it gets, the faster it, it evaporates. And eventually it explodes and go and disappears into nothingness. So black holes are not necessarily eternal. How do they follow the conservation law of conservation of energy? Because the black hole has a mass, yeah, and that mass is conserved. That mass doesn't disappear anywhere, yeah. Uh, when a black hole accretes something, when it swallows a star, the mass of the star is added to the star to, to the mass of the black hole. So the mass is conserved. When a black hole radiates energy, Hawking radiation, you can calculate how much energy is radiated, and that is subtracted from the mass. When two black holes merge, there is this enormous gravitational wave tsunami, which takes away some of the mass. So the resulting black hole is not quite the sum of the masses of the two black holes, but you can, but it, it overall, it all adds up, and energy and mass are conserved. Mass and energy are essentially equivalent. Yeah. So that's how it is. So black holes are not necessarily eternal. Large black holes, supermassive black holes, you could say are eternal because uh, they are colder than the temperature of the universe, the temperature of deep space, the CMBR temperature. And that's why they, they, they get larger over time. They accrete radiation. And their lifetime essentially exceeds the lifetime of the universe itself, 13.8 billion years. So large, sufficiently large black holes are essentially eternal, more or less. Eventually, as the universe expands, it will get it will get colder, and then those black holes will become hotter than the the temperature of the universe. But that's how it is. So black holes are not necessarily eternal, and they certainly do follow the law of conservation of mass and energy. Krishnan says the cultural symbol of China is the dragon. The dragon. So, what's the cultural symbol of India? Is it the Indian elephant, lion, tiger, or peacock? Uh, yes, the cultural symbol, so to say, of China is indeed the dragon, this uh, this imaginary beast, which is like a snake that flies or, or, or a great lizard which with wings, that, you know, when claws and talons, talons like, like an eagle. And uh, I suppose it, it can uh, spit fire as well. Yeah. So that's the, the mythical uh, creature, imaginary creature that is the symbol of China. What's the cultural symbol of India? Well, the cultural symbol of India is something that's up for debate. Everything in India is up for debate. They even debate whether India is a nation or a civilization or an idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so everything is up for de debate. It doesn't necessarily have to be an animal. Yeah. So when it comes to various other nations, well, Russia's symbol is the bear, isn't it? Kind of. It's the unofficial national symbol of Russia, the bear. For for the US, it's that 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 fierce and evil looking eagle which is kind of appropriate the the bald eagle um for wales it's 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 some kind of a dragon again for england what's yeah the three lions that they have on their crest or something like that so every nation has, has, has some symbols for india uh the west tries to portray india as an elephant to show india as a slow moving sleepy creature yeah 
otherwise one could associate the elephant uh, the the tiger with india for for sure because it's something that's uh, india has the largest population of tigers and historically always has, has had that yeah so it could be the tiger the peacock well yeah it's the national bird of india if i'm not mistaken if i'm not mistaken the peacock but yeah it's it's uh, it's not quite appropriate to have the peacock you know this harmless little pretty little bird not little but pretty bird as the symbol of a nation we need to have something fiercer so it doesn't necessarily have to be an animal uh, the swastik the, the symbol the swastik symbol the holy auspicious swastik symbol could be the national symbol of india it's something that's been associated with india since the days of of the indus the saraswati sindhu period of our history yeah so the swastik could be that the om symbol could be that yeah we could also have the dharma chakra which is something that's uh, that's common to all the dharmic paths yeah the dharma chakra we also have the ashoka the the lion standard of ashoka which is not bad lions we like lions yeah so it could be any of those things i don't think there is any consensus we keep on arguing and debating about everything we should have something that is not that 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 portrays that evokes uh, some majesty and power not something that's sleepy and slow like an elephant not something that's pretty and harmless like a peacock it could be possibly uh, possibly the tiger possibly the, the three lion uh, standard of uh, of ashok or something that is uh, something like the swastika or, or or the om symbol or the dharma chakra i think uh, eventually we need we need to find some some consensus on this maybe the tiger the bangladesh is try to claim that the tiger is their national symbol well that's all right <laughs> but uh, that's okay so yeah I, i'm not sure what the symbol is we have so many symbols we are the oldest civilization we have been around for more than 10000 years yeah so a civilization the civilization that's that old is going to have a whole lot of symbolism you know s- symbols associated with it so if you want to pick just one symbol then maybe we should have a nationwide poll in which case many weird things will come into the picture also <laughs> that's how, how it is we we have too much democracy we have too much debate we keep on arguing about pointless things we should settle on one great symbol majestic symbol maybe the tiger maybe the ashok lion standard and make that the official symbol of india yes okay let's go into geopolitics now hardik says india has recently fast tracked worked work for a 11 gigawatt hydropower dam on the siang river which is a tributary of the brahmaputra of arunachal just 100 to 150 kilometers from a chinese 60 gigawatt dam which is in chinese occupied tibet north of the region considering the overall cost of 1.13 lakh crore rupees for this dam project how do you see this move by the government do you believe that china and india might go to war in the future for fresh water resources of tibet right good question so let's look at the region where is this region uh, uh, i'm not sure where exactly this is but you can see this enormous massive river the brahmaputra over here and you don't see much of it coming in from from tibet so more than 80% of the waters of the brahmaputra they originate in the forests of arunachal pradesh yeah so if the chinese cut off the 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 yarlong tsangpo which is the tibetan word for tibetan name for brahmaputra and they divert it it's not going to cause any major problems for india or for bangladesh or or, or yeah it's not going to cause any major problems the thing is that they are damming up the river upstream 
the river originates in the Tibetan plateau and then it flows southwards. It's, it enters Arunachal Pradesh and flows through Assam, eventually into Bangladesh, where it merges with the Ganga, it becomes the Padma, and it flows into the uh, Sea of Kalinga or the Bay of Bengal. So why is India constructing this large dam, hydropower dam, on this this uh, tributary of the of the uh, of the Brahmaputra, just 100 to 150 kilometers from the Chinese dam? There are reasons for this, and it's not about. Uh, the reason is very simple. See, if the Chinese divert away all the water, we are fine with it because most of the water of the river comes from Arunachal. The danger is that the Chinese may, may do a sudden release of water, which may cause shockingly large, massive flash flooding in lower-lying uh, in southern regions like in India, in Arunachal or Assam or elsewhere, which could cause catastrophic damage to India. That is the real danger. And the Chinese have tried such dirty tricks in the past. In the early 2000s, maybe 2003, 2004, they had dammed up a river called the Parichu River. Somewhere in, where was it? Arunachal? Was it Ladakh? Somewhere in, in along the Tibet border. And uh, yeah, there was a danger that this artificial dam would be broken and the entire... Uh, it would cause an enormous amount of flooding and kill lots of people. So when a nation controls territory that's that's upstream and at a higher altitude, there's always the danger that they can release water suddenly without warning and cause catastrophic damage to your territories and, and kill lots of people. So if India builds a large enough dam, uh, south of the, of the Chinese dam, then if the Chinese release water without informing us, then we can catch it and we can mitigate the, the potential catastrophic impact of this thing. So I, I believe that the uh, 11 gigawatt hydropower dam we are building is, is going to be a dam that can take care of such an eventuality. Yeah, If there is a sudden release of water, this dam will be able to absorb much of it and the overall impact downstream will not be what otherwise it would be. So that I believe is one of the major reasons why this dam is being constructed close, reasonably close to the Chinese dam in uh, occupied Tibet. Yeah, And of course it's going to generate hydroelectricity for us and all that. So, so that's the deal. The other question is, do you believe that China and India may go to war in the future for fresh water resources of Tibet? I don't think so. Because most of the water, like I said, in the Brahmaputra originates in Arunachal Pradesh itself. So even if the Chinese completely divert the river, still more than 80% of the river uh, water of the Brahmaputra will keep on flowing. So that's fine. So I don't think it's something that could lead to war. There are certain Indian so-called geopolitical commentators, including very senior people who are scaremongering right now. You go to Twitter and see certain accounts. I'll not name them because I, there's no need for that. But there are people including very senior people who have written books, who are scaremongering, who are trying to create this, this uh, sense of panic in India, that the Chinese are are, 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 are indulging in, in water warfare against India. And one of the, some of these authors have written books about, about Chinese rivers and all that. So, mm -mm, yeah. So overall, I don't think it's, uh, if the Chinese divert it, it's a problem. The only danger is if they play these dirty tricks and release water all of a sudden without warning. So that's why we need to have dams that can absorb the impact of such unforeseen, malicious, sudden releases of water by China. Because the Chinese 
we know that they can't be trusted they they can play any trick on us and they can blame the weather they can make any any kind of excuse so that's the primary reason i believe why this dam is being constructed james stevenson says tibet never conquered china lol oh my goodness tibet never conquered china well james stevenson has decided that tibet never conquered china i i'm sure this is a comment from one of my older videos where i must have said that tibet conquered china so what are the facts so um so let's let's see what, what the facts are right there was a tibetan king tibetan emperor called trisong detsen who lived in the 8th and 9th centuries ad who did conquer china so mr james stephenson i need to educate you about this let's uh, put something on on the screen yes uh Let's begin with Wikipedia. As always, the statutory warning to everybody, my friends, is that don't trust Wikipedia, especially when it comes to Indian history. But I am putting this on the screen just for reference, because even Wikipedia is telling the, telling the truth in this case. So let's put this on the screen. Yes. There is this article on Wikipedia about the Tibetan Empire. Tibetan Empire and uh, all that. So there's a map here, Tibet's influence on, on the region. Uh, let's go to history and let's go to the reign of Trisong Detsen. This Trisong Detsen is 756 AD to 797 AD. Uh, so this guy was crowned emperor with the name Trisong Detsen. He took control of the government when he attained his majority, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in 755, China had begun to be weakened because of the Anshi rebellion started by An Lushan in 751 AD, which would last until 763 AD, almost uh, more than a decade. Uh, Trisong Detsen's reign was characterized by the reassertion of Tibetan influence in Central Asia. Uh, regions to the west of Tibet paid homage to the Tibetan court. From that time onwards, the Tibetans pressed into the territory of the Tang emperors, reaching the Chinese capital Chang'an, which is modern-day Xi'an, in late 763 AD. Tibetan troops under the command of whoever occupied Chang'an for 15 days and installed a puppet emperor, while the other emperor was in Luoyang. Nanshao and Yunnan and all that remained under Tibetan control from 750 to 794 uh, and so on. And eventually they turned on the Tibetan overlords and helped the Chinese inflict uh, defeat on the Tibetans. So Trisong Detsen conquered China and he took the capital city Chang'an, modern-day Xi'an. Some people will say that but they did not take, they, he did not take Beijing. Well, Beijing was not the capital at the time. Chang'an was the capital. Okay, so this is about Trisong Datsun. You can look into it. What was Chang'an? Chang'an is present-day Xi'an. Chang'an is one of the oldest cities in China. Uh, the the first emperor of China. Uh, what was his name? Qin Shi Huang or King Shi Huangdi. Let's see. It's written here. Wait, 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 wait. It'll be written here. Here you go. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China. His imperial court was just north of the modern day city of Xi'an yeah so uh it essentially has been the one of the oldest capitals of China it was certainly the capital of China during the time of the Tibetan invasion yeah and the the, the famous terracotta army of the Chinese emperor King Shi Huang Huang is is in a mausoleum right outside this city yeah so this was the old 
historical capital of China, Chang'an. This is the capital that the Tibetans conquered. They installed a puppet emperor over here under the leadership of the uh, Tibetan emperor Trisong Detsen. So, uh, uh, dear James Stephenson, unfortunately, <laughs> LOL, but yeah, it's it's not quite the case. The Tibetans did indeed conquer China. You can certainly study more about it. Yeah, it's all out there in the public domain. I don't understand why people just when they come across some new information, they are not ready to fact check it or verify it, do a simple Google search. They will simply take the time to write a comment and say, LOL, it never happened. Look it up. It happened. <laughs> All right, next. Radha Opti says, if India carries out a military operation to take back POK, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, what will be the reaction of the European Union, especially of America? The reaction will be that of anger and they will take action. See, Pakistan is a vital territory that is controlled by the West. It has been created artificially for a certain geopolitical purposes which are still being served. Let's take a look at the map. Uh, yeah, sorry. Let me put that on the, 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 on the screen. Here is the map. Here we are. So this nation was artificially created by the West, by the British, to cut India off from Central Asia. And because Jammu and Kashmir had acceded to India, they had to ensure that some parts of Jammu and Kashmir also went to Pakistan. And that's how we have been cut off temporarily for now from Afghanistan and Tajikistan and the rest of Central Asia. This was part of the great game, right? So if India takes back POK, India will regain access to Central Asia which is not good from the eyes of the West because it's going to create a whole domino effect. You know, the see, essentially, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all these nations are Russia's strategic backyard. It's part of Russia's exclusive zone of, uh, of influence. Russia has routine military exercises with, with all these nations. So if India can access Afghanistan and Tajikistan, then the Russians can build, you know, infrastructure through the region and they can start accessing the warm waters of the Indian Ocean, which is something the Russians have for centuries wished to do, right? And obviously India will have to take more than POK back because the Wakhan Corridor is a very mountainous region. We'll need to take essentially northern Pakistan back, which uh, needs to happen anyway. So that would be a disaster from the West, for, for the West, from their perspective. So if India today carries out a military operation, the West will impose sanctions on India. They will portray us as warmongers. In 1971, George W. George H. W. Bush, the senior Bush, who was then the, who was a senior official at the time, he called India a warmongering nation in 1971. I have seen an old copy of Time magazine or Newsweek or whatever, in which India was portrayed as a, war, as a warmonger. In the words of George Bush, the senior George Bush, in 1971, when India was fighting a just war, it was we, have, we had gone to war for just causes. It was a war initiated by Pakistan, and still they were calling us warmongers. So if initi India initiates something, imagine what they will call us. They will most likely impose sanctions on, on India the way they have imposed on Russia. They may even send aircraft carrier strike groups, and you know who knows what they will do. So right now, it is not the right time for this to happen. We need to ensure that uh, we need to do this when the when the taking back of POK becomes inevitable. You don't do something when there is a high chance or, or a high probability of, of uh, not succeeding. You do something when you are certain of succeeding. That's when you do it. So we have to engineer a situation, a geopolitical situation, where we are so powerful 
that it is inevitable that we will take it. It should fall into our lap without us even fighting for it. That's what we need to do. The, the, the mark of a true leader is that he or she wins without fighting and nobody even realizes what happened. That is the greatest victory. When you win without, without firing a single shot. So India has to maneuver itself into a position over the next decade or whatever where it is inevitable that this happens. We don't want to carry out a military operation. It should come back to us on its own. So we have to rise to that status where the people of Pakistan, people of POK, start clamoring and begging to be reintegrated with India. Of course, we don't want to reintegrate the whole of Pakistan right now. That may take another 50 or 100 years because of the extreme radicalization there. But POK in northern Pakistan is necessary. We need it back. Yeah for geostrategic purposes, for geostrategic reasons. So uh, right now is not the right time for this. In the future, things will change. This is a, dec a decade of very rapid change. We're going to see very rapid geopolitical changes in this decade. And we need to ensure that we rise economically and militarily over this decade. And I think by the time this decade, decade is out, if we play our cards right, then this could become more or less inevitable. So that's what needs to happen. We don't need to jump the gun and do something which is hasty and ill-advised and when it's not the right time to do it. We need to be a little patient. It's not going to take a lot of time for us to retake POK and and uh, achieve our geopolitical objectives. You know, And these are just causes. These are our territories. They have been our territories for 10,000 years. So it's not like we are stealing someone's territory and doing something wrong. Right. Somnath Abhishek says, in yesterday's Indian Interest podcast, you mentioned about having kids in the early 20s. What's your opinion on the cost of living of sustaining a family in one's early 20s? Very good question. Most people in this age don't even earn a good primary school annual fees in a month. Also, population is one of the reasons why cost of living competition is increasing in our country. So yesterday I went into detail about this. I gave the example of China. I analyzed the example of China and how their one-child policy has caused it has, it has begun to cause a demographic disaster. And now the people have kind of given up. They are protesting passively against the Chinese government by refusing to have children. It's going to cause a terrible population crash in the future. The population's average age is going to be going to the 50s and 60s eventually, which is a disaster for any country. Most people is gonna, are going to be old. which it is It's a disaster. So we don't want to go in that direction. For that, our birth rate, the total fertility rate should be at least 2.1. We have dropped below that. It's 2 now or maybe less. So we are slowly going in that direction. The window of demographic opportunity for India is up to 2050. Now, so that's why I said that we do certainly need to reduce the population, but it should not happen in an artificial and hasty manner. We should do it over a century or two centuries. This is the long-term game. Our plans need to be measured in centuries. We have to be patient. We are a 10,000 plus year old civilization. A century is nothing for us. Yeah, many things won't happen in our lifetime, but they will happen in the lifetime of our descendants. So that's what we have to work, work for. We are links in a chain and we have to do, we have to show, make sure that we are strong links. Our part is done properly. So now the question is a very good question. I said yesterday that the optimum thing to do is for young people to have their children two children or whatever they want to have, at least two, I would say, in their early 20s. So that by the time you're in your early 40s, when you're at the peak of your career, your kids have grown up. Yes? And then you can truly focus on your career and through through your whatever you do in your career, you can uh, help the country Yeah, and, and help India grow. That's what we need. You reach the peak of your abilities 
in career, in life, in the 40s. In the 20s and 30s, you're still learning as you go. You're not really all, all grown up. That's how it goes. You know? so, so I said, you should have your kids in your early 20s and then get on with life. Don't wait until you're in the 30s or 40s to have kids. It's, it's kind of late. It's going to exhaust you. Kids, it takes a lot of energy and effort to raise kids. The question is a very good one that most people who are young in their 20s don't have much of an income. They are still struggling to find some, some way in life. And if you have kids, how are you going to pay afford, afford to pay for them? So I the, the solution is this. that You need to rely on your parents, on your families. So we have always had this extended family system, which is why all, the kids were always very well taken care of. Now today... Unfortunately, in this post-colonial or still colonized India, there are only a few centers of development in the country. Certain tier one metropolitan cities, uh, Delhi, Bangalore, Mumbai, uh, Hyderabad, Chennai, and all. And there are some tier two cities, there are tier three cities also coming up. But opportunities are few. So people are forced to migrate from wherever they live to some large city. And then that's that's causing this phenomenon of these nuclear families or, or whatever. Uh, so what needs to happen is India needs to develop so that tire two, tire three cities also develop and you people can stay with their parents and have the same opportunities that other people have in their own uh, hometowns. And it's perfectly fine, I would say, to stay with your parents in your 20s, even in your mid-30s. Yeah, If you can do that, then at least your children are in a safe space. Of course, I'm assuming your parents allow this. In the US, by the time you're 18, your parents will throw you out. That's why the, the American society is so broken. U.S. society is so broken because there is no such thing as a family system. Once you're 18, your parents will throw you out on the streets. Doesn't matter what happens. Just live in your car if you don't have a if you can't afford to have an apartment. That's not how a civilized society behaves. And I'm, I'm sad to sorry to say this. Yeah. So the problems are being caused by the breakdown of the family system, the extended family system. You don't need to live. In the same house as your parents, you can live nearby and whenever you're working, you can drop off your kids with your parents. The grandparents love to be around grandkids, mostly, most, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So the, the solution is that we have to rely on our extended families, especially the elders. That's what needs to happen. We need to ensure that our family system, which has evolved over thousands of years, stays intact. We don't want that to break up. Yeah. And yeah, it's going to be expensive. You know, school fees are going to be expensive. Maybe you can take the money or borrow the money from your parents and hopefully pay them back if possible in the future. That's what family is for. That's what parents and, and overall your, your, your extended family is for. You, you're all here to help each other, right? Grow. So that's what needs to happen. The society has to be a strong, cohesive society. The family system has to be robust. We have to maintain it. We have to nourish it. What's happening is the opposite right now, especially with this wokeness that's coming into Indian society these days. So we need a blend of modernity and tradition. Modernity in, in terms of technology and ease of life and, and all that, but we cannot destroy the foundation of our society in the name of modernity. So it's it's definitely a challenge when you have kids when you're when you're very young, when you're in your early 20s, you most likely won't be able to afford everything, you know, the, the upkeep the raising of the kids and school fees and all, well, rely on your parents until you are financially self-sufficient, which can most likely happen by the by your mid-20s or late-20s. Yeah, And I'm sure your parents want 
begrudge this. They'll be happy to to help out. Most parents are like this. Some parents obviously may may have other ideas, but that's how it goes. So I know it's it's a challenge. It's tough, but we have to do this. And in the long run, you will realize that if you have kids early, it was it was the best thing you, you could have done. Yeah. So yeah, that's how it is. Anisha says, can you explain the history of Iraq and the Syria conflict? The Iraq conflict and the Syria conflict and what's the solution to the problems of that region? Okay, let's take a look at the map. Where is the map? Let's take a look at Iraq and Syria. We know where India is, subcontinent. Then westwards is Iran. And then you have Iraq and Syria, right? Iraq... uh, uh, touches the Persian Gulf. Obviously, you have Kuwait here, and Syria is uh, it uh, it has uh, the coast, the Mediterranean coast. Yeah. So, what's the history of this place, right? So let's not let's not go back thousands of years. Obviously, you had Mesopotamia, the the, Mesopot- the Mesopotamian civilization in Iraq. Syria also has a very old history. But let's let's talk about the history of the conflict here. Yeah? So uh, it all dates back to the end of the First World War. World War One ended in the well. When did it end? Late 1910s. It started in 1914 and ended around 1920. Okay, look up the dates. Look up the dates. So at the end of World War 18, 1918, maybe. So at the end of World War One, uh, the Ottoman Empire had been destroyed. The Western powers destroyed the Ottoman Empire, which was anyway crumbling. It was crumbling since the 19th century. So they destroyed and and dismembered the Ottoman Empire and they divided it up among themselves. They created, there was this thing called the League of Nations, which is the precursor to today's United Nations. Okay, So the League of Nations, which was entirely controlled by the Western powers, it decided that there should be something called a mandate system. So the Ottoman Empire will be broken up into pieces and each of these will be called a mandate. And one piece will be called the, will be given to the, the British to rule the British mandate of Iraq. It was called Iraq. And one part was given to the French, which became Syria. So I think Iraq was given in 1920, Syria was in 1918, or, or vice versa, whatever it is, that, that's not very important. I'm talking about cause and effect. So Syria became a French mandate and Iraq became a British mandate. Why did the British want this big piece of territory for themselves? They wanted this as a vassal state, as a buffer state for two purposes. This region is rich in oil and the British wanted the oil, just like the Americans do today. Why did the Americans go to war with Iraq? <laughs> for oil, not for democracy and freedom. Just see how many people they killed through carpet bombing. So it's all about the oil. So the British wanted control over Iraq to present the Iraq, firstly for the oil, and secondly, because they wanted to safeguard the Suez Canal, which was the umbilical cord of the British Empire at the time. Yeah, At the time, they still controlled India, and they needed safe passage through, through the Suez region, Al-Suez, the Suez Canal. So the proximity to, to this region gave them, uh, it, was, it was good for them. So that's why they wanted Iraq. So they took over the mandate of Iraq, uh, the mandate of Iraq in 1920 or so, and the French took over Syria in uh, 1918 or somewhere around there. Let's say 1920, roughly. Yeah. Uh, then uh, eventually, I think by 1928 or 1938 or so, they, the British so supposedly gave freedom to Iraq, but they kept on interfering in the internal affairs and they, they kept on controlling the oil production and all that until when? Uh, 19. 
1950s or something. Yeah, I think until 1958. The Suez Crisis happened in 1956 and the British were in control of the oil production and various other things in Iraq until 1958. And after that, I think the Americans kind of started putting their fingers in, in, in the pie and the Americans started controlling Iraq. You had all these revolutions and um, coups and all that in Iraq. Eventually, the Ba'ath Party uh, took over. Saddam Hussein took over. Saddam Hussein was allied with the US. He was a vassal of the Americans, and the Americans were very happy with him. Yeah, for for a significant amount of time. In Syria, what happened is that uh, uh, there were these various. Uh, there was various governments came and, and went. I think in 1970 there was a bloodless coup, and uh, Bashar. No, sorry. Hafez al-Assad came to power. He was a military guy. There was a bloodless coup. He came to power. He allied Syria with, with the USSR. He allied Syria with the USSR and Syria became active in the regional geopolitics. Uh, so Hafez al-Assad died in 2000. Uh, even though Syria had aligned with the USSR, they allied with the US in the first Gulf War to, to liberate uh, Kuwait from Saddam Hussein. That's interesting. So, senior Assad died in 2000 and his son, the junior Assad, Hafez Bashar, Bashar al-Assad <laughs> came to power. Yeah, it, it's a dynastic succession. Um, and then in 2011, there was this so-called Arab Spring, which were these color revolutions instigated by the Americans across the Arabian uh, countries. There was one in Egypt and other places as well. Libya was destroyed by the Americans. Uh, Gaddafi was, was assassinated. Uh, and, and various other color revolutions throughout the Arab world. So the Americans tried a similar thing in Syria as well. There was this so-called outpouring of, of uh, protests and unrest uh, against the the authoritarian rule, supposedly, of, of Assad. That was the Syrian civilian war. So Assad, the uh, father and the son, they are both a part of a minority community in Syria. So Syria has this mixture. See, these are artificial nations. As you can see, you have straight borders, you know, straight lines. Wherever you have straight lines, you have artificial borders. And wherever artificial borders have been created, every nation becomes a, a mix of ethnicities, which is unnatural and which is something that generates unrest and civil wars. And that's why all these regions are so, so messed up. So in Syria, you have Sunni Muslims, you have Christians, you have Kurds, and you have the Alawi people, the Alawites. The Alawites are have traditionally been oppressed by by the Sunnis. The Alawites are are Shias. They are also influenced historically by Christianity and Zoroastrianism. And the Alawis are about ten to twelve percent of the population of of the of, of Syria. The Assads are Alawis. They are Alawites. So they are a minority who rule Syria, and the that's been used to to create unrest in Syria among the Sunni Muslims and other people. So in 2011, the Americans instigated a civil war in Syria, and uh, and uh, significant portions of the country fell to the so-called rebels, including Al Qaeda, who were fighting on behalf of the U.S. and and many other uh, coalitions and forces. Um, in 2015, the Russians under Vladimir Putin intervened in Syria. Yeah. At this time, you had U.S. troops in Syria. The Russians then intervened in Syria. They, you got Russian troops and Russian material and, and aircraft, etc., that uh, came into Syria. There is this port in Syria, Latakia, where you have, uh, where at times the Russian aircraft carrier has been parked and Russian warships have been there. So after 2015, the tide turned because of Russia, thanks to Russia, and the Americans eventually withdrew their forces from from Syria. But then they asked Turkey to get involved. 
So the Turks have got involved in Syria. They have uh, occupied, I think, the northeastern part of Syria, which is currently under Turkish occupation. And that's the kind of situation you have in Syria right now. Overall, Basad al-Ashar is mostly secure thanks to the support of Russia and Vladimir Putin. And right now, the Americans are fighting a proxy war in northern Syria through Turkey, through the Kurds, because the Kurds have always wanted a free, uh, their own homeland in this region. So that's the deal. That's the kind of uh, history Syria has had. That's the history of the Syrian conflict. It's not yet over because uh, it's, uh, you know, to end the conflict, you have to cut off funding and cut off support to what's happening, but uh, th that's not the case. So Syria is kind of still in, in a state of civil war to a certain extent, but uh, Assad is now more or less in control of most parts of the country. And now it's kind of a civil war, kind of in a very small way, like what's happening in Ukraine through through proxy. Yeah. So the Turks are the American proxy in Syria. And the Turks have these expansionist tendencies, so they're happy to occupy parts of other countries, right? So, uh, like the Turks have occupied parts of Cyprus and they are also playing games against Armenia. They keep threatening Greece. So, Turkey is happy to, do, to, to play this role. In the case of Iraq, we know what happened to Saddam Hussein and now Iraq has been totally destroyed. And I don't, I don't even know who's in power there. It doesn't really matter. They're all puppets. So, that in, in brief is, is the history of Iraq and the Syria conflict. What's the solution? The solution is for the occupying forces, the Western powers, to get out of the region. And then it will take some time, a few decades, maybe a century or two, for the region to realign itself naturally. These processes take time. Once the external influence goes away, the, the colonial imperial influence goes away, then things can realign themselves, readjust themselves on their own, but that takes time. It, it's, it's often messy. So all these problems that have been created across the world by the by the westerners all these uh, nations that have straight line borders which are completely artificial and un un unnatural these are going to create conflicts in the future after the western influence has been taken away it's going to take a long time for things to go back to their natural order this is a recipe for civil war and disaster and worse across africa across the middle east and even in the indian subcontinent that's what they've done they have planted the seeds for maybe a couple of centuries of conflicts. And it's it, their, their intervention is still happening, the Western intervention in all these regions. So it's, it's going to be a long time before things go back to, to the way they should, the natural order of things. The solution is for the West to disengage and withdraw and let these nations and the peoples and the cultures, you know, figure it out among themselves through whatever means is necessary. To, to 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 you know the the future that they want and that's gonna first go through a phase of conflict multi multiple conflicts possibly that's how it is that's that's the dirty game they've played Sabir Kazi says what are your views on Indians considering the US as the biggest threat threat after China and how has the Russia-Ukraine war changed the perspective of Indians? Because many Indians learned geopolitics after the invasion and got to know how geopolitics works. I think Indians are still figuring out, figuring out how geopolitics works. But Indians are no longer that naive nowadays, which is visible from the fact that they now, Indian, most of the respondents considered the US as the second largest military threat to India after China. If you had asked Indians in, 19, uh, in, in 2017, they would have said Pakistan is the number one threat. Most Indians until 19, uh, until 2017 viewed Pakistan 
as the number one threat to India. Then you had the Doklam, Doklam crisis. Then you had the Galwan clash. Then China came into focus. Then all the news media started focusing on China. And then China came into the national consciousness. And now Indians understand that China is the primary threat. Pakistan is just a proxy of other, other forces. So Pakistan exists as long as it serves certain purposes. And it is propped up right now by the West. Previously, it was China. Now Indians, I think, are beginning to realize this. Especially people who watch this channel understand this. <laughs> uh, and the Russia-Ukraine war has certainly changed the perspective of Indians to some extent. If you watch the Indian news media, even today, you watch any Hindi news channel or most English news channels, they report as if it's it's they're reporting on behalf of the West. It's it's They're purely aping and copying the Western topic, talking points. Most of the reporting in India is still extremely silly like they have no opinion of their own they just watch what's being said on on the british news or the or the american news and then they say the same things in hindi or in in some other way in english that's typically what's what it's been there are a couple of major indian english language news channels that sent their reporters to the ukraine conflict region and they reported everything from the Ukrainian side of the conflict. If you want to have balanced reporting, send a couple of people also on the Russian side of the conflict and report from both sides. Then we know what's happening. No, they won't do it that way. And they call it great reporting. So the Indian media is 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 like, um, I, I don't have any anything much nice to say about them. Yeah, but yes, Indians are now slowly realizing uh, about geopolitics. Possibly because of the role that Dr. Jayashankar is playing in the entire thing. He's probably one of the um, most active and most impactful diplomats in the world right now. He is putting forth India's uh, perspective uh, firmly without, without uh, uh, devolving into what we call the wolf warrior diplomacy that the Chinese involving, indulgent, which is rather uh, nasty and, and it's unpleasant. Dr. Jayashankar is, is none of that. He's a very... Uh, very firm diplomat, but he is very eloquent and he is very persuasive. Obviously, the West is not going to be persuaded, but at least it's educating Indians as to what India's national interest is and where India's interests lie from the geopolitical perspective on the big global scale. So I think um, Dr. Jayashankar has played a, a major role in educating Indians. Yeah, uh, I think uh, he has acquired a significant fan following and that's I mean, he should have more fans, actually, considering the incredible role that he's playing. So, yeah, I think uh, it is much of it is thanks to Dr. Jayashankar. And because of the, see the, what we call the Jayashankar doctrine, eventually, after all, is the Modi doctrine. Dr. Jayashankar is carrying out the policies that Mr. Modi wants him to carry out. From 2014 to 2019, it was Mr. Modi who was a de facto foreign minister of India. Mr. Modi was the de facto foreign minister of India. Most of it was being done by him, despite us having an actual uh, nominal foreign minister. No disrespect to anyone involved. I'm just saying that if you look at facts, Mr. Modi was doing the bulk of the work of the foreign ministry. And Mr. Modi was doing it extremely effective, effectively. But now th he has been able to uh, delegate this work to an extremely capable person. And that's great for us. So th that tells you the value of having a professional as a foreign minister, as opposed to a politician who takes up the job because they they want power or status or whatever, I'm, I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, by the way. Okay, so uh, 
So things have changed a lot after the Ukraine conflict happened. We, we, in India, we have started looking elsewhere. We always looked at Pakistan, then in the last two, three years at China, but now we are looking elsewhere as well. And we are beginning to understand Indians, the Indian young people especially, are beginning to understand how the game is played. It's all about power. It's all about resources. It's all about control. When now we are beginning to understand what role the economy plays, what role the military plays, all that. It's it's great to see this. We are, Most Indians are still learning, but at least we are seeing them waking up now. And the results of this poll that you're mentioning is, is kind of an indicator that Indians have kind of woken up now. And Indians are not that naive anymore. A year ago, I used to get really frustrated how naive Indians are. Yeah, it's not, the, it's not quite the case today. People have really woken up. So I'm, I'm really, really happy to see that. Rodrajit says, uh, Iran doesn't have very good relations with Turkey and Pakistan. Why doesn't Iran support the Kurdish independence movement or the Balochistan independence movement? All right, let's take a look at the map. Everything becomes clear when you look at the map. This is, if, if you learn nothing from this channel, you please learn this. You want to understand a nation's foreign policy? Look at the map. The map will tell you what the foreign policy should be. So let's take a look at the map. Right. We are talking about Iran and we're talking about uh, the Kurdish movement and the Balochistan independence movement. Yes. So uh, where is Balochistan? Where is Kurdistan? I think that's what we have to ask ourselves. Let's uh, close that for a second and let's let's see Balochistan. Balochistan. Let's do a Google search for that. <laughs> Kurdistan. And let's put that on the screen so that uh, you get uh, you get the context. Uh, all right, let's put this on the screen. Kurdistan. Let's go to the map of what Kurdistan is. This is what Kurdistan, Kurdistan ought to be. The uh, light-colored region that you see in the screen. Let me bigify this. Okay, this is a bigger... <laughs> Okay, there we go. So the Kurdish inhabited Kurdish majority region is the light colored region. As you can see, it encompasses parts of Iran, large regions of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, temporarily, maybe not, uh, parts of Syria and parts of Iraq. So the Kurdish people don't have a nation of their own. They are divided into four or five countries. Their, their, their territory is divided, has been taken over by four or five countries. Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria. And some of it is even in, in, in Azerbaijan, Armenia, maybe. Yeah. So that's the deal. So why would Iran support Kurdish independence if it would mean that the Iranians would have to give up some territory for this independent nation? Why would they do that? The Kurds, the Kurdish people are not an Arabic people. They are an Indo-Iranian people or, or the West, Western historians would call them an Iraq, Iranic people and Iranian people. Um, they used to be historically Zoroastrians or something else perhaps, maybe something even before Zoroastrianism. But today they are Muslims, but they are not Arabs. So they are very, they have very close cultural and ethnic ties with the people of Iran, the Persian people. And yet Iran occupies about maybe a quarter of their territory. So if Iran were to support, support Kurdish independence, it would mean that Iran would be willing to give up this Kurdish portion of its territory. And that is something no nation will ever, ever do. So that's why Iran doesn't support Kurdish independence. Now let's talk about Balochistan. 
let's talk about Balochistan. Once again, we go to images and let's see the map of Balochistan. Let us bigify this. This is the bigified map. Embigand. This is the embigand map. So this is the ethnic the a map of ethnic groups in western India and now temporarily whatever nations there are. Yeah. So the dark brown thing is Punjab, which was historically the territory of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, which the British have given up given to Pakistan illegally. Yeah. This brown territory has always been was the Sikh Empire. I don't understand why it was given to, to Punjab. Actually, I do understand why, but it was not right. Sindh is yellow. Green is the Pashtun dominated, dominated region. And pink is Balochistan. Do you see where Balochistan is? It is it is in Pakistan, parts of Afghanistan, and a significant portion of it is occupied by Iran. You could say that at least a third of Balochistan, about a third of Balochistan, is currently occupied by Iran. Yeah, you go to Chabahar, you go to this region, you will see Balochi people there who have right now Iranian citizenship. So if Iran were to support the independence of Balochistan, they would have to give up this pink portion of their territory as well. So why would they do it? And this is one of the reasons why India is right now not playing to, to is not playing this Balochistan independence card too strongly. Because if India were to support independence of Balochistan, it, it means that we would have to also support the secession of the Iran Iranian portion of Balochistan. Yeah, I mean, uh, morally we would, we would we would have to do that or or whatever. So that's why that's one of the reasons why India is not going down that road right now. Because we uh, we have good relations with Iran and we we need uh, we have uh, a certain convergence of geopolitical interests with Iran. So let's not go down, down the road. So Iran doesn't have good relations with Turkey or Pakistan, but they will not support independence for the Kurds and they will not support independence for Balochistan because they hold, they, they, they have taken over territories of both these peoples. And why should they give it up? No nation ever does that. So that is the reason why Iran will not support the Kurdish independence movement or the Balochistan independence movement. There is good reason for them not to do that. Interesting. Of course, it's interesting. Next question. Daniel Nicholson says, when India and China eventually and inevitably rise as the numero uno, numero uno civilizations, how would Europe compete to remain affluent as they are today? Firstly, okay, good question. Firstly, it's going to be either India or China, eventually. It's not going to be both. It's not going to be both. There's, there's only room for one top dog <laughs> in the world. At any given point in time, sometimes you have this uh, this uh, bipolar situation, but it's typically nations that are situated geographically far apart. Two nations that are like today, India and China are, are essentially neighbors temporarily because the Chinese have have occupied Tibet. Yeah, so that's that is going to come to a head eventually. Eventually, it's going to be either India or China. Okay, now the question is what what will happen to Europe? How will Europe compete? Ask yourselves this one question. Forget about Russia. Russia is not part of Europe. Russia is an, is an East, Eastern culture. Okay. Let's talk about Western Europe. Uh, what's, what's part of NATO? Uh, NATO and the EU. That is the Europe we are talking about. Ask yourselves this very simple question. What do these nations produce? What natural resources do these nations have? Do they have large quantities of oil? Do they have large quantities of gas? Do they have large quantities of iron or copper or any minerals or coal or, or any such thing? Do they produce large quantities of, of food grains? 
these nations overall if you put them together they have next to nothing in terms of natural resources or any such thing the reason why they are so incredibly affluent is because of the past 5 centuries of colonization and loot and plunder of mainly india and also africa and other nations and of course of course the americas yeah so the reason why these nations are so affluent is because of theft and plunder and genocide and colonization and of course they use the money to build themselves themselves up and create all these systems and obviously they have done a good job of of using the money to to create this extremely advanced society these extremely advanced societies yeah so one has to give it to them that once they stole the money they were they were able to put it to good use but eventually when either india or china rise and they become the preeminent civilization and they establish a different kind of world order as opposed to the to the to the us rules based world order which is a neo colonial world order neo imperial world order once india or china imposes their world order on the world which will happen within 50 years or 100 years most likely then these guys will have no other source of income even today africa is being plundered as if it was still colonized you don't realize this yeah because it's it's done in a very nice way by the the <laughs> by proxy i mean eastern Af- uh, western africa mali etc has some of the world's largest gold reserves but these countries are dirt poor while most of their gold is in france how does that happen it's called neo colonization so once this system of theft and plunder and neo imperialism and neo colonization is ended europe will inevitably decline and go back to where they have always belonged you know Europe has historically never been the most prosperous region. They went through the rise of Europe only happened in the past 500 or so years. Before that, Europe was never prosperous. Look at the GDP charts of the past 2000 years. Angus Madison, look it up. Yeah, I'm not going to put it in the screen. You can uh, do that much homework yourself. Look up the GDP charts and see in the past 2000 years which European nation had anything like the GDP of 1/10th of India or 1/10th of China. none of the european nations had it if you put the whole of africa together it did not add up to india's gdp and so on so eventually as either india or china rises to the top europe is going to decline and it since it doesn't really produce anything intrinsically it's going to go into poverty eventually and especially when they will have no other place to plunder that's how it's going to go and yeah the world is going to change a lot and we are wit- beginning witnessing the beginnings of that we are witnessing the beginnings of that we are in a way living through a very dangerous and difficult time very turbulent time but on the other hand we are also very privileged privileged to witness these changes happening in real time typically such changes happen over decades or centuries we are witnessing this happen week upon week month upon month year upon year by the time the 2020s end the world is going to be a very different place take it from me right Okay, two questions about uh, a similar topic. Grave Walker says, "Your opinion on the recent find of Indian DNA in Greece from 1500 BCE and the decipherment of linear A script using linear B script reveals Sanskrit." Oh my god. What is this? Did Mitanni groups go further from Syria or is it something else? Descended from Rigvedic clans asks very good questions. A paper was dropped on 17 January with 106 samples on ancient Greek ancestry and 66 samples are from the island of Crete. Um 
where Bharatiya Langurs are offering saffron to a goddess as depicted in the ancient Minoan period, 1600 BCE. These samples have 13 to 10 percent Bharatiya ancestry. We have the examples of zebu cattle, uh, griffins, uh, Indus Valley griffins, shield, lapis lazuli ring found in the Minoan sites. Saraswati Sindhu civilization and Minoan culture have similarities in hydro technologies, according to a 2020 paper. What's my thoughts about these evidences? All right, good question. So I have recently come across this paper. I haven't studied it in detail, but let's first take a look at what this region is. Where where, where is this region? The island of Crete in the Minoan region. Where is it? So we know where India is, yes? All right, let's orient ourselves. Let's go slowly westward so that we can keep up. Go west, we have Iran. Go west, we have Iraq, Syria. Then we enter the Mediterranean Sea region. We have Anatolia, which is currently called Turkey mostly. And then you have the island of Crete. Crete. It's historically been a Greek island. You had the great Minoan civilization in this region. Yeah, the Minoan civilization... Dates back to about uh, 3500 BCE. That's the beginnings of the Minoan civilization. So the Minoan civilization was uh, around these islands in the Aegean Sea, Crete and the Aegean Sea islands. It was a seafaring uh, island-based civilization. It was a you could say you could say it's a it was a kind of Greek sort of civilization or a pre-Greek civilization, right? So, uh, which now? So now that we have oriented ourselves, let's take a look at the paper that we are referring to. Where is the paper? Ancient DNA reveals something. Admixture of things. Here it is. Here we go. Let's a uh, hide this for a second. Ancient DNA reveals admixture history and endogamy in the prehistoric Aegean Sea region, and. Uh, it's 102 ancient individuals from Crete, the Greek mainland, and the Asian islands, spanning from the Neolithic to the Iron Age and all that. And there's a detailed description of the findings. And uh, you can find, this is the region that they're talking about. The points are the places where, from where they found the uh, samples and all that. So we will not go into the details of the paper, but it becomes clear that about 10 to 13% or whatever of these samples have Indian ancestry. They call it Andamanese DNA or whatever, but it's Indian ancestry. You know, they, they use terms that are extremely misleading and confusing for most people. So the thing is that this, this is Indian DNA. And, and let's, let's talk about the monkeys, right? The langurs. Uh, let us talk about the langurs found on Santorini Island. Uh, one second. Let's put that on the screen. Here we are. Santorini. Santorini. Langurs. So there are these paintings, ancient paintings on Santorini Island that depict very strange monkeys that are not found in the region. The monkeys, monkeys are depicted as bluish in, in nature. Their faces have a different color, darker faces, and they have these incredibly curved tails. Yeah. And eventually the scientists realized, the researchers realized that these are Indian langurs, Hanuman langurs. Yeah. Here is another fresco. Uh, there are more murals of these monkeys. Yeah, And these monkeys are found in India, not in the Mediterranean region, not in the Aegean region. So uh, that's the that's the surprising founding that, what, that people uh, realized recently. So this is an article from 2020. It's from a physics portal. Solving the Greek monkey mystery gave us an important clue to the Bronze Age world. Uh, they talk about the 
Akrotiri excavations, the blue monkeys and all that. And they eventually realized that these were Indian Hanuman monkeys. They thought it was baboons or vervets or grivet monkeys, African species and all that. Uh, but then they found the tails and all that. And where is it? Hanuman langurs. Eventually they re realized these are Hanuman langurs. Right? So how did Indian monkeys end up all the way in Santorini? And the agency is the question. So first of all, that indicates that uh, this 3,600-year-old city had ties with ancient India. At that time, we had the Saraswati Sindhu or so-called Indus Valley Civilization period of Indian history. Right? Uh, so that's a deal. And now we have this paper that talks about... Uh, the fact that uh, a certain percentage of these these samples, 13% uh, or so, have Indian ancestry. Indian ancestry. So not only Indian monkeys, but Indian genetics are found in this region. And this dates to, to about 1700 BC to about, about 1000 BC. Yeah, these samples, the, the date range of the samples is from about 1700 to about 1000 BC in the Aegean Sea region of present-day Greece. Now, we know that in this region, we had the Minoan civilization. The Minoan civilization dates back to about 3500 BC. It lasted till about 1000 BC. So this is definitely smack bang in this uh, time, time period. So either the Minoans themselves had Indian ancestry or you, or you could look at uh, neighboring kingdoms and empires. We had the Mitannis and the Hittites. So so the, the agency region is here and close to it, we had the, the Mitanni that we have spoken about multiple times who clearly were of Indian origin, the Mitanni uh, kingdom in, in Syria and Anatolia. Yeah, this region here. If you can see my mouse pointer. We also had the Hittites who were most likely of Indian origin. Uh, they lived in Anatolia, west of the Mitannis. Yes, uh, the Mitannis date back to about, about 1800 BC starting point. And the Hittites date back to about 1700 BC, starting point, Syria and Anatolia. Uh, most likely the Mitanni and the Hittites had Indian, uh, it is almost certain that they had Indian ancestry. The Mitannis uh, were an Indo-Aryan, so, so to say, aristocracy that ro ruled over the local Horian population. So that's quite close to the uh, agency region. And it's possible that... Uh, the Indian ancestry came in from either the Mitannis or the Hittites. It's also possible that it came, it originated with the Minoans themselves, dating back to 4,000 to, to almost 3,500 BC. Now, then there is this other thing, this uh, new paper that's been published, uh, that is what is being referred to by Grave Walker. Yeah, decipherment of linear A using linear B script. So, in in the Aegean Sea region, in the Minoan culture, there have been, they have found two scripts. One is Linear A and one is Linear B. Linear B clearly is an ancient form of Greek. Okay, But Linear A has never been kind of deciphered until you come to this paper, this article from 2022. And now it appears that you have Sanskrit words that are being attested, that, that are being attested in this script. So it looks like linear A was used to write either Sanskrit or a closely related descendant language, an Indo-Aryan language. So they have found uh, Indo evidence of Indo-Aryan dialect in 10 Minoan linear A inscriptions. So let's take a look at the inscriptions. Uh, they, they, they have all these. 
so there are words like uh, thalassa this is the greek uh, script but it says thalassa labyrinthos and so on so uh, these greek words apparently have a sanskrit etymology or origin uh, and uh, yeah so this paper talks about that so this paper has uh, so you can read the paper and it looks like linear a was used to write either sanskrit or an indo aryan language so once again this points to an out of india migration in deep antiquity we know what happened 4200 years ago which is uh, the 4.2 kilo year event the, the century of drought across most of the world which kind of ended the the which uh, dried up the saraswati river and made people disperse from the saraswati sindhu region in westwards as well as eastwards yeah and which coincides with the appearance of indian zebu cattle in in the so called fertile crescent region which again is adjoining this asian sea region so these are all coincidences that add up together so most likely it is either the mitannis or the hittites or maybe the minoans themselves who had indian ancestry and now it with when you take the evidence of the decipherment of the linear a script which seems to be either sanskrit or a very closely related language then it is possible that the minoans themselves were of indian ancestry at least the ancestors and then they may have inter- intermixed with the local populations as well but the overall culture remained the original culture which eventually morphed into what is now greek culture or or pre greek culture or whatever yeah so yeah that's that's the kind of uh, evidence we are finding as these pieces of evidence add up it points more and more in one direction that there were multiple out of india migrations as opposed to an into india aryan invasion migration picnic tourism whatever it was out of india out of india a uh, flow of genetics and culture and languages yeah so yeah it's it's a very interesting uh, new development and i still have to read the entire paper in detail but very interesting so that's the, that's the preliminary uh, impressions and thoughts that i can offer to you tejas says why did the arabs and turks and moguls not dissolve into indian culture like the kushans and the shakas and the greeks did <laughs> good, good 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 question we just spoke about the fact that the greeks may have indian ancestry right and if you look at ancient greek culture it was a polytheistic culture the greek pantheon of gods is a copy of the vedic pantheon of gods their greatest god jupiter uh, sorry zeus pater is nothing but dios pitro of the which is the old rigvedic god but uh, zeus pater also has elements of indra the thunderbolt the vajra right? the hammer the hammer is kind of latent in this but yeah so greek culture if you go back to the origins it kind of originates in indian culture so when the greeks uh, after the failed disaster of alexander's invasion of india attempted invasion of india then you had the seleucid mauryan war which was kind of a handshake kind of thing hi get nice to know you and then the mauryan empire and the seleucid empire became allies very strong allies with family relations yeah intermarriage and all that and then after the dissolve dissolution of the seleucid empire in the northwest of india let's put the map on the screen because that that's what helps us understand things where's the map back to the map so then you had these indo greek kingdoms in gandhar in northwestern india present day afghanistan 
in the western pakistan northern pakistan all that right present day and these greeks these these uh, rulers of these regions were originally of greek ancestry and then they intermingled with the local people the local indians and they became very much indian yeah and they anyway were polytheists and their culture even if you go back in time originated in india itself most likely so it was not hard for them to harmoniously integrate themselves into indian society and people if they ask where are the greeks today well they are all among us <laughs> most people in these regions northern and western india would have fractional greek ancestry maybe half a percent maybe 1% yeah and it's it won't be visible at all and the greeks are anyway not very different not very european as such yeah so that's about the greeks the kushans they originated in uttarakuru the kingdoms of uttarakuru were indianized kingdoms they were of indian origin themselves we know that um and the scythians the shakas they originated from uttaramadra which is present day central asia these were all indianized regions and the original inhabitants were of all were all of indian origin of course they, they these were nomads especially the, the shakas the scythians they were nomads and they they roamed as far as eastern europe they conquered parts of eastern europe and much of these regions the entire central asian steppe and they intermingled and 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 mixed up with people of europe as well Uh, so that's what happened but overall the skythians were sun worshippers and when they re-entered india they also were able to integrate very harmoniously with indian society without any friction that is known of at all i mean there is no historical record of any uh, ethnic friction or strife or any such thing they just assimilated harmoniously into indian society and they were great rulers Uh, for for the time that they ruled india the uh, northern chhatrapas and the western chhatrapas right the western chhatrapas were the great uh, lords and protectors of the great uh, jyotirling of somnath and so on so the skythians were also of indian origin and they were also polytheists and same goes for the kushans yeah when it comes to the arabs and turks the moguls are turks themselves they came from a very different see initially there were these these huns who invaded india which are the originators of the what of the later turks the huns eventually some of them became turks they later became known as turks so we had the turkshahi dynasties in india in in mainly gandhar afghanistan that actually defended india for a couple of centuries against the turkic invasions the initial turkic invasions yeah so even the huns were able to assimilate very harmoniously into indian society despite being a very different ethnicity yeah a mongolic ethnicity essentially uh the turks and the arabs the turks were essentially the descendants of huns but they were islamized so they were monotheists they were uh, they they practiced abrahamic uh culture so did the arabs and that is very different from any polytheistic culture and that is something that can not integrate itself easily into a polytheistic culture so that's what happened it's because of this very stark difference in the culture of the arabs and the turks that they were not able to integrate themselves into indian society the way all other um visitors were able to yeah so that's the answer sir in short shaheen says do you agree that the japanese goddess benzaiten and the persian goddess persian goddess anahita are just other different versions of saraswati because they are very similar to saraswati anahita was called aridvi sura anahita and benzaiten okay let's let's uh, put some of that on the screen yeah i have some stuff here let's put that on the screen so let's talk about anahita first the origins of the persian 
goddess anahita the original name was aridvi sura anahita which is essentially a, a, a way of saying saraswati anahita is a river goddess yeah um so the oh yeah it says here aridvi sura anahita avest name of an indo iranian cosmological figure uh go- goddess of the waters fertility wisdom healing in this uh, depiction she is on a lion i think and she has a sun behind her or or a halo this is a persian or greek kind of depiction of anahita aphrodite in the guise of aphrodite so the, the greeks uh, borrowed this <laughs> uh conflation with ishtar which is a semitic uh, divinity and all that but this is nothing but the portion version of saraswati because the divinity is unattested in any old western iranian language establishing characteristics prior to the introduction of zoroastrianism in western iran is very much in the realm of speculation uh the akhamenids devotion to the goddess even evidently survived their conversion to zoroastrianism which means that this is a pre zoroastrian goddess the akhamenid dynasty converted to zoroastrianism zoroastrianism from which religion from hinduism obviously the original persians were hindus zarathustra himself was born a hindu right so it's it's clear that this is a uh, saraswati the the persian version the persian form of saraswati now let's talk about benzaitin shall we so this is from encyclopedia britannica benzaitin or benten they call it uh, so this is one of the f- seven gods of luck or uh, divinities of luck in japanese culture um the buddhist patron goddess of literature and music and wealth and femininity which is nothing but saraswati uh all that uh, she is identified with the indian goddess saraswati also a patron of literature and the arts who probably traveled to japan along with buddhism so buddhism brought with it hindu gods and goddesses into japan and uh there are seven gods major gods in japan so bishamon let's take a look at bishamon bishamon or bishamonten is essentially kuber the buddhist uh, version of kuber or veshravana all right let's see who who else we have uh, daikoku daikoku is mahakala the hindu god shiva in his aspect as time the great destroyer and so on and so forth so it's clear that benzaitin is saraswati let's take a look at what benzaitin is depicted as representations artistic benzaitin okay let's see how the japanese depict benzaitin so she is uh, depicted as a goddess who plays a string instrument like like the veena for instance we have and she is on a dragon here here again she's playing a wind uh, a string instrument here uh sometimes she's on a dragon sometimes some other beast sometimes on a lotus over here she's on a, on a on a on a swan like uh, in india let's see this over here she's on a white lotus like the way she's depicted in india so yes benzaitin is clearly the japanese version of saraswati and she is even in japan the goddess of knowledge and wisdom and and literature and femininity and and water she is strongly associated with water and the sea sometimes she is shown as being on a fish sometimes some other animal here it's a dragon and and so on yeah and she always has a string instrument with her so it's clear that anahita is, is the persian saraswati and benzaitin is the japanese saraswati do you know the distance between persia and japan all of that was indianized at one point in time and yeah that's the history right what else shall we talk about 
Rodrigit says our history textbooks say that before the European colonization of Africa, there was nothing but jungle and dangerous wild animals and primitive, backward, uncivilized people in Africa. Is this another propaganda to make the Europeans look superior? No, it's propaganda designed to hide the fact that Europe destroyed Africa. Africa was an extremely developed place. It had its own beautiful cultures. It had kingdoms and empires and civilizations. Yeah, Take a look at Africa, how large it is. And Europe reduced this to complete abject misery and poverty. And to hide that, they have depicted Africa like this. So let's talk about some of the African kingdoms. We know about Egypt. Egypt is, well, over here. And India had ancient ties with Egypt. We know that. So Egypt, uh, everybody knows about that. We also know about, some of us may know about Carthage, which was in North Africa, Tunisia. Yeah, The empire of Carthage from the 9th century BC to about the 2nd century BC, which was eventually destroyed by the Romans, again Europeans. Then you had the kingdom of Aksum, in Ethiopia, Eritrea, that region from the 1st century BC to the 8th century BC or thereabouts. A wonderful, very advanced kingdom with a beautiful culture. You had in Sudan, if you go to Sudan, you had the kingdom of Kush from, I don't know, 8th, 9th century BC to about the 4th century AD. You had uh, the Ghana Empire in Western Africa, in, in Mauritania and Mali. Very rich, very prosperous empire from the 5th century AD to about the, I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th century AD. You had the Mali Empire also. Uh, we know about Mansa, Musa and all that. Yeah, We had a kingdom of the great Zimbabwe in southern Africa, which had a monumental architecture and, and palaces and fortresses and all that. We had the kingdom of Benin, which was destroyed, which, which was from the 13th century until... Until 1897, when it was destroyed, burned to the ground by British troops. So Africa had wonderful history, a very ancient and rich history and beautiful cultures. The Africans are not one single people. There are so many different ethnicities and, and cultures within Africa. And today it's like, you know, Africa, the Africans are just one people. And there was nothing in Africa except... Uh, jungles and poverty and savagery that's not the case it is europe that has totally destroyed africa totally destroyed africa so yeah that's the thing about africa whatever propaganda has been put in place has been put in place by the europeans to kind of hide what they have done to africa okay next question debashis goswami says what's the difference between happiness joy and bliss <laughs> we're talking philosophy here philosophy so listen i don't uh, who am i to teach you what is joy happiness and peace let us go to our ancient scriptures shall we let us go to the tetriya upanishad and let's talk about bliss and joy and happiness so the tetriya upanishad first let's put that on the screen tetriya upanishad is it on the screen Tetriya Upanishad. So what is the Tetriya Upanishad? It is part of the Krishna Yajurveda, the black, the dark Yajurveda. So uh, the Tetriya Upanishad has three chapters, the Sikshavalli, the Anandavalli and the Brigavalli. So these are available in Sanskrit, they are available in Tamil, they are available in Telugu, they are also available in the uh, Roman script, in English, 
Yeah. So let's talk about the Anandavalli, which is the second chapter of the Tetriya Upanishad. And let's go to a translation. Now, these translations are not uh, necessarily very accurate, but I'm just putting on the, on the screen so that we get an idea of what, what it talks about. So it's a, it's a, we're going to talk about this particular Anuvag 8 of the Anandavalli. Okay. Uh, so it says, suppose a youth, a young person, a good youth, learned in the sacred lore, promptest in action, steadiest in heart, strongest in body. Suppose he owns the entirety of the earth with all of its wealth. That is one human bliss. What is a hundred times the human bliss? That is one bliss of the Gandharvas, the human Gandharvas. What is a hundred times the bliss of human Gandharvas? That is one bliss of the Deva Gandharvas. What is a hundred times the bliss of the Deva Gandharvas is one bliss of the Pitrus. The Pitrus. Uh, what is a hundred times the bliss of the Pitrus uh, is one bliss of the Devas born in Ajana, Karma Devas. And a hundred times the, the bliss of the also of the these Devas is one bliss of the Karma Devas who have reached Devalok by work. Then hundred times that is uh, the bliss of the karma devas is one bliss of the devas of the deva lok. There are thirty three devas, eight vayus, eleven rudras, twelve adityas, indra and prajapati. These are the main devas. A hundred times the bliss of the main devas is one bliss of indra, who is the lord of all the devas, the king of the devas. A hundred times the bliss of indra is one bliss of brihaspati, the teacher of indra. A hundred times the bliss of Brihaspati is one bliss of Prajapati, the lord of all the creatures. And a hundred times the bliss of Prajapati is one bliss of Brahma, Lord Brahma. And Brahma embodies the entire bliss of the universe. So our bliss is part of the bliss, the, the collective universal bliss of Brahma. So that is something you get to, uh, that that the Anandavalli chapter of the Tetri Upanishad which is part of the Krishna Yajurveda tells us. So our ancestors, our ancients had really thought about these things in extremely uh, great depth and detail. So that's what I can offer you about happiness, joy, bliss, all that. Yeah. So yeah, that's about that. Okay, we are almost at the end of uh, today's session. Let's take a couple more questions. I have so many more questions. I'm going to have to not take them all. Uh, let's take one, two more, and then I'll take some from the live chat. Mohammed Yaqub Khan says, In Taiwan, many Pakistanis have opened restaurants in the name of India. <laughs> Indian restaurants, yeah? And we have to point out many times to our Indian embassy, but still, uh, they are not. we are not finding a permanent solution. <laughs> Listen, in India, there's nothing you can do about this. If Pakistanis open Indian restaurants, well, their cuisine is also Indian cuisine. And they're going to try and encash on the name of India to get customers. And they'll say, yes, we are Indians. Or, Whatever. The thing is this. In India, in every small town, big city, you have tens of thousands of Chinese restaurants run by Indians. So do we want the Chinese to protest? So these things, there's nothing you can do about it. Even if we protest to the Indian embassy, the Indian embassy is not in a position to force the Pakistanis to say these are not Indian restaurants, they are Pakistani restaurants. Because there is no such thing as Pakistani cuisine. <laughs> Even Pakistani cuisine is Indian cuisine. Even Bangladeshi cuisine is Indian cuisine. Yeah, they, they, that's what it is. That's what it is. So yeah, in a way, we should 
well if you want to you can take it as as a compliment that everybody wants to be indian yeah uh, one hears that when pakistanis travel out of india they pretend to be indians so that people are not scared of them yeah so yeah that that's the that's a thing or india Daniel Nicholson says, is it possible to actually develop cruise missiles with literal sea-skimming capabilities as shown in sci-fi movies like Stealth, where the UCAV displayed such capabilities? If so, how would such missiles maneuver amongst ground structures? So it is certainly possible to develop such uh, missiles. You, you could have subsonic missiles, supersonic missiles, which is up to 6,000 kilometers per hour, or hypersonics, which are from 6 to 12,000 kilometers per hour, High hypersonics are up to 30,000 kilometers per hour. And then you have re-entry speeds which are higher than 30,000 kilometers per hour. So let's say you want to develop a hypersonic missile uh, which is based on ram scramjet technology. It is possible to, uh, to give it sea-skimming abilities. When it's on over sea, it can like be about 10 meters or maybe five meters above the surface, as long as the waves are not too high, it will do fine. But when it, uh, so let's <laughs> let's let's take a hypothetical scenario and don't get angry, okay? I'm just it, it's just a hypothetical scenario. Uh, let's go to the <laughs> map. Let's take this completely hypothetical scenario. Let, let nobody get offended that you have a submarine in, let's say, the Indian Ocean. And it has a hypersonic missile with sea skimming ability capabilities. And you want to make this uh, missile pay a visit to London, let's say. Okay, this is just a game. This is entirely hypothetical. Nothing, uh, no hard feelings here. But let's say we want our missile to pay, pay a visit to London. So you would launch the missile, let's say, from, from the submarine. And it will go over the sea. And you want it to fly, let's say, 10, 5 meters above the sea. Or let's say 10 meters so that it doesn't hit any ship. And uh, you can uh, make the, the missile talk to your satellites overhead so that you know where the ships are and all that. Uh, and mostly nobody has any radar over the, over the ocean. So it's fine. Nobody will be able to detect it, especially when it's traveling at hypersonic velocities. Then maybe you want it to travel over land where there are very few habitations. So, you know, in desert areas and all that. Maybe Somalia, the Horn of Africa, Djibouti, Eritrea, all desert. Uh, Sudan, Egypt, Libya, mostly desert. And you can plot the exact coordinates of the exact precise path you wanted to travel in, in the missiles computer system, in the, in the microchip and all that. So it can take a past path of least resistance. And then it can very quickly cross France or whatever, go over the sea and then reach London overseas and so on. So you can certainly program this if you if you are able to give the missile a sufficient maneuverable maneuvering capabilities and you have such technology which already exists so i am not sure if any missile has been announced that is a hypersonic missile and it also has sea skimming capabilities but it's certainly within the realm of possibility given the present technology that's already available among the major nations of the world uh, when it comes to ground structures, you would want the missile to stay a little higher. So you can program the exact coordinates of the path you wanted to travel based on where you know there are not too many ground structures, mainly, mainly over deserts and forests and all that. You can make it travel, fly it maybe 10 meters, maybe 10, 20 meters maximum so that nobody can detect it on radar from far, that sort of thing. So it's certainly possible. All right, I think we will... Uh, 
I will not be able to take all the other questions I have selected. Let's now take some questions from the live chat. My dear friends, if you have questions you would like me to ask right now on the live chat, go for it. And I will take some question, questions from the live chat. Samarth says, why are people generally attracted towards white skin tone? Historically, Indians had, did not have any such thing. It's only in the past, in, in the past millennium when we were, you know, occupied by, by foreigners, the, the, this sort of attitude seems to have come in. Look at the ancient uh, paintings in Ajanta, Elora, etc. You see people, very attractive, good-looking people who have reasonably dark skin tone. Yeah. Um, think about Lord Krishna, who's supposed to be one of the most good-looking men ever. He, His name is Krishna. He had dark skins, very dark skin. Yeah. Think about someone like Draupadi, a very attractive lady from the past. She also is known to have had dark skin. So it's not like it's always been like that. This is These are attitudes that have crept into Indian society along with other defects in the past 1000 years. When a society is under foreign occupation, it is unable, it is prevented from functioning the way it naturally functions. And, and it's under a lot of stress, external stress, and that's why all these defects creep into society. And that's one of the things is this supposed attraction towards white skin tone. All right, let's see something else. Do we have another other questions? Giuseppe Di Fraia says, uh, what characteristics should I look for in a potential future wife? I want to get married, but I'm not sure what characteristics and qualities to look for in a wife. Well, you should look for somebody who is going to be your friend in the long run. Yeah. Obviously, you want someone who is good looking, attractive, uh, uh, maybe good family and uh, all that. Yeah. But marriage is a long term thing. Hopefully, it's a lifelong thing. So you want to be with somebody who is going to be a friend for you in the long run and somebody who's going to be able to support you and, and, and uh, encourage you and all that through thick and thin. So that's what you need to learn, need to look for. Today, everybody is like, especially the, the younger generations, it's like, let's try a few relationships and see how it goes. And I'm sure I can do better. And I want to find my dream soulmate or something. There is no such thing as a dream soulmate or any such thing. Find somebody with whom you can spend the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be what's, what, what, what the movies show as some kind of starstruck lovers or, or soulmates or any such thing. It should be somebody with whom you can be very comfortable and somebody who's going to support you. So if you find somebody like that, it's obviously, it means that you're lucky. But yeah, this currently there's this attitude, let, let's have like 10, 15 relationships. Let's have a few breakups and we will learn along the way. If you have this attitude that I'm going to eventually find the right person, you're never going to find the right person. Because you, even if you find what could be the right person, you will always feel that, yeah, there could be some somebody better waiting for me. So, you know, Historically, the, these, this role of finding a right partner used to be left to the elders, the parents, to the family. Today, it's all broken down because of the, of the breakup of the extended family system. So, yeah, today we have this uh, this uh, this uh, going on in society, and it's it's uh, causing problems. Yeah. So, the characteristics you want to look for firstly understand marriage is supposed to be hopefully a lifelong thing. Yeah. So look for somebody with whom you can be really comfortable, somebody who will really support you and somebody who is genuinely a friend. A friend. That's that's 
ideally what you want and obviously that person should be you know good looking and all that that's also a good quality to <laughs> to, to have i i suppose uh okay shall we take maybe a couple more questions karan nalavat is struggling with complex numbers complex numbers it's it's a it's a beautiful field in mathematics yeah obviously it's 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 definitely something that some people would struggle with i would say most people would struggle with so you have to go back to the basics start with the very basics of what a complex number is yeah a plus ib or x plus iy or whatever yeah uh, and start with the very basics and practice 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 you want to you want to master mathematics any branch or field of mathematics you have to solve hundreds maybe thousands of problems and the more problems you solve the more comfortable you get with it so if you are struggling at a certain level you have to go back to a couple of levels be- be- before this because if you're struggling here mathematics is like a building first floor second floor third floor fourth floor ground floor so if you're struggling at the fourth floor maybe the problem is with your fundamentals at floor number 2 or floor number 1 or maybe at the ground floor itself so go back revisit those concepts master that then progress forward that's how it is done that's the logical process of mastering mathematics at the end of the day it's about practice 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 i think anybody can master mathematics especially indians indians have historically and genetically been really good at math we have produced the best mathematicians historically so yeah all the best sir right what else do we have mm uh tejas says did the greeks ever conquer patliputra it is said that the greeks uh, once reached patliputra maybe in the aftermath of the dissolution of the shunga empire because uh, the shunga empire was started by pushyamitra shunga it was founded by pushyamitra shunga the great senapati of the last mauryan empire emperor by assassinating the emperor during a military parade and it was i think brihadratha who was the last mauryan emperor and he was married to a greek lady an indo greek lady and i forget the name of her father he was uh, one of the kings in in gandhara in one of the indo greek uh, kingdoms yeah uh, demetrius was it i i don't quote me on that so uh, pushyamitra shunga assassinates brihadratha brihadratha the last mauryan emperor he makes the mauryan empress's empress a widow her father is a king in gandhar so he takes the opportunity to come and come to his daughter's rescue because it gives him a viable cause to go to war and when there is chaos when the emperor has been assassinated and a new guy is trying to establish power it's always a good opportunity for an outsider to come in and you know try to conquer territory bite away at territory so it is believed that the greeks did reach patliputra So some accounts do say that i i do recollect reading some of that it was not a long lived phenomenon eventually we know that the shungas did establish a, a strong empire yeah but initially the greeks may have reached up to patliputra and maybe even in the future after the shunga empire, empire dissolved maybe possibly the greeks maybe once could have come up to patliputra even um, minander the great dharmic buddhist king milinda he also tried to move into patliputra he he marched eastwards and he was eventually stopped and defeated by the great king karavela of kalinga so yeah very interesting history yeah very interesting and this is this is something nobody bothers to teach you in 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 the indian education system um <clears throat> uh 
what else do we have? Let's take one more question somewhere. Okay, did Porus defeat Alexander the, the Greek? Most likely Porus defeated Alexander the Greek. The Greeks will obviously say that Alexander was great, but he was made to turn back with his tail between, between his legs and go back to Babylon where he died of the injuries and wounds he had earned during the attempted invasion of India. Yeah. So most likely, I mean, the, the Russian Admiral Zhukov, one of the great admirals of, of, of the USSR, wrote about this. And he said that the uh, Alexander's invasion of India, attempt to invade India, most likely ended in defeat at the hands of Porus. Purushottam, Parvateshwar, whatever the name was, yeah, Puru, whatever they call him. The Greeks called him Porus. So most likely it was a defeat. Of course, they, they will never say it was a defeat. They will say that he defeated Porus and then he was magnanimous to him. He said that I'm going to treat you like one king treats another king and all that. But most likely it was a defeat at the hands of Porus. Most likely. Okay, I think we're going to end it over here. Thank you so much for all these questions. Always wonderfully exciting, interesting, stimulating questions coming in from all of you. Thank you so much for that. Next weekend, I am not going to be able to come live because I'm traveling. I'm going to be in Pondicherry. But uh, let's see if I can do something from there, possibly. But yeah, most likely not. But I'm going to put up some clips and all that. So this channel will keep on rolling until the next weekend when I'm going to be back live and things will go back to normal. So until then, take care. Thank you so much. And I will see you soon. Thank you. Bye.